0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 6 of KIPP On Learning. I'm your host, Dave Levin, and each episode will be sharing insights, inspiration, and challenges from across the KIPP network. Many of our schools, like so many others, have parents who are currently on the front lines of the pandemic working in a variety of jobs that have been deemed essential in order to ensure people are safe, the overall economy is running, and people have what they need to survive. We are deeply grateful to all KIPP parents and all essential workers who risk their safety every day and have had to juggle working their job and supporting their children through remote learning during the day. As we hear in the news every day, the job market is suffering in historic ways. While some recent reports show that 42% of jobs lost at the start of the pandemic have rebounded, these same reports suggest that the rest will be harder to regain. Unemployment is still at 10%, with millions of families unable to return to work due to lack of childcare and unsafe working conditions. Here to tell us what this means for families and their abilities to make ends meet, as well as the impact on the entire economy, we're excited to have Seth Harris, former Deputy Secretary of the US Department of Labor under President Obama and visiting professor at the Cornell Institute for Public Affairs. Thanks for joining us, Seth. We're very excited for this conversation and so let's just start like in your view, how has COVID-19 exacerbated the issues in the U.S. workforce and economy and what industries are being particularly hard hit and what do you see happening over the next couple of months?
1: Well, first of all, Dave, thank you very much for having me and really delighted to be with you and the KIPP community, uh, parents and educators. Both my parents were school teachers. And so I feel really close to any educational organization. So let me start with the communities that got hardest hit and then with the industries that got hardest hit. As is so often true in America, there are really meaningful racial disparities in the consequences of COVID-19. If you are Black or Latinx in the United States, you are much more likely to be an essential worker And therefore, you were more likely to be exposed, infected, and sadly die from the coronavirus than if you are a white American. It's also true that Black and Latinx Americans were more likely to be unemployed as a consequence of the pandemic recession, what I'm calling the pandemic recession. And that's because they those groups as well as women were overrepresented in the industries that were hardest hit. Think of the industries where the business is conducted face to face. So hospitality, eating and drinking establishments, travel, frontline work, frontline responders, healthcare, those are the industries that really got very suffered the worst job loss, really had the biggest decline in business, are now seeing the largest number of small businesses disappearing. So there's an overlap in the industries and the racial consequences. And we've got got a long way to go before we recover. What do you see as the
0: role of the Labor Department in both protecting essential workers and in this recovery? And what do you see as the road towards that recovery?
1: Yeah, so the government is going to play a huge role in the recovery. And sadly, right now, it's not doing that. So the Labor Department, among other things, is responsible for workplace safety and health. But the Occupational Safety and Health Administration has really been almost completely absent. They've gotten thousands of worker complaints. They have not responded to those complaints. They have not put out any new regulations or clear guidance about how to keep workplaces safe and how workers can keep themselves safe, they haven't been involved in making sure that workplaces have all the personal protective equipment that they need. The Labor Department also provides workforce job training, skills development, and since we now have almost 3 million workers who've lost jobs that have disappeared that they can't go back to, those workers in some cases are going to need new skills, new training, new experiences, new credentials, so that they can get into new jobs in different industries or maybe even in the same uh, industry. The Labor Department also protects wages and leave, paid leave. Congress provided extensive paid leave. The Labor Department just lost a lawsuit because the regulations it wrote about paid leave were much too narrow, excluded millions of workers that shouldn't have been excluded. And the Labor Department protects retirement plans and health insurance plans, and they've really been absent in that space as well. Let's talk a little bit about the comparisons to the depression. But first, let's go
0: back to two things that you said, one, Obviously, these worker protections, Taji, your first point, you know, are essential, particularly for the Black and Latinx workers. And so for folks who feel like they aren't getting relief from the Labor Department, what is their recourse at that point if they're feeling unsafe in their frontline
1: jobs? Yeah, well, that's a very hard question. There isn't. In most cases, a right to sue under federal occupational safety and health laws or even under state occupational safety and health laws. Some states that run their own safety and health apparatuses are doing a much better job. California is doing a better job. Nevada, other states are really stepping up to the circumstance and trying to keep workers safe. But... Some workers have taken it upon themselves to bring lawsuits. So if there is an imminent danger, that's a term of art, imminent danger in the workplace, and you don't feel safe in the workplace, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration is supposed to jump in and protect you. If they don't, some workers have been able to sue. not They haven't succeeded yet, but they've begun to bring lawsuits, and that puts pressure on the federal government, which is the right thing to do.
0: Let's go to your other point about Congress. So I'm gonna say something which I know is virtually impossible today. But like if we were to take politics aside for just like 30 seconds, in your view, given the expertise you have, what are like the three, like most critical things you think Congress, separate from like the political back and forth? But you're just like, these three or four things need to happen in order for us not to have the type of cratering you were saying that would take us back to something like the Great Depression? Yeah,
1: I'll try to limit it to three or four, but it's, boy, it's a big list. So let's start with this. How big Except, is it? Right, the list? is the list is long. I mean, the, the House Democrats passed a bill back in May that's a $3.4 trillion bill. That'll give you, so it's $3.4 trillion long. That give you a sense. But let me just try and identify three or four things. of the American economy is consumption. It's people buying and selling things, right? It's goods and services being bought and sold by people. The most important thing we can do is to put money in the pockets of people who will immediately turn around and spend that money. That's unemployed workers, low wage workers, it's food insecure workers. Because what they do is they turn right around, they get that dollar. They turn right around and go to the grocery store. They pay their rent, they pay their utility bill, they pay their internet bill. They get clothes for their kids. And so the money ricochets through the economy and helps us to grow. So it's not just good for those families, although that would be enough for me. But that's also good for the economy. So that's number one. Number two, this is a lesson from the Great Recession back in 2008, 2009. There's a huge drop off in state and local government revenue, right? There's sales tax revenue has fallen through the floor. Income tax revenue has fallen through the floor. States and local governments are drowning and they don't have the luxury that the federal government has of going into debt, right? They they can only spend what they get from taxes. And so they're gonna have to cut and already have cut way back on employment and services to the people who need those jobs and need those services the most. So getting about a trillion dollars to state and local governments, including local school districts and public charters, God, that's absolutely essential. Not merely because we want the employment level to stay up, but because we need those services to get to the American people, right? We need firefighters, we need teachers, we need libraries, we need health frontline healthcare, care, public hospitals. So I think that that's absolutely essential. And then we got to take on this coronavirus pandemic. So we need testing, right? And right now it's taking far too long for tests to get back to people. So we need a comprehensive national testing system that gets rapid results back. Because remember, a large percentage of the people who have this infection are asymptomatic, so we don't know. And how are they supposed to protect them, their families and their communities and their workplaces if they don't know that they've got the infection? So we need to get rapid testing and we need contact tracing. So if I find out I have it, everybody I've interacted with in the last couple of weeks needs to know it so they can get tested and they can find out if they're safe.
0: You know, we're with you on the huge amount. I mean, we're seeing that firsthand with our families. And I, I do wanna talk about childcare and, you know, mm-hmm. It's interesting because we're hearing, you know, right now, we're in the process, like we're right in the middle of reopening. We have states, you know, we have, as you know, 255 schools this year across the country. We're in 20 states, the District of Columbia, everyone has different regulations. But some of our states are opening now, this week, next week. And we're hearing from families, and it's a mix. Some folks are obviously not comfortable returning to school. And some parents are saying, look, we can't go back to work if we don't go to school. So there's your point about the interconnection of all these things we are experiencing firsthand. Just the three things you mentioned, getting money into people's pockets, I'm assuming that's the $600 that we had been experiencing over the first set of months. You said the second part was about a trillion dollars to local governments, state and local governments. And then the third part was really a national testing infrastructure what would be the cost
1: of just those three in your estimation? So I haven't done the math. Uh, you know, The cost of the extended unemployment benefits, that $600 supplemental payment, depends upon how many people are unemployed. We've got about 30 million people right now who are collecting unemployment benefits. So it's about 18, if all of those people are getting these extended benefits, it's about $18 billion a week right, in order to pay that $600. So just extend that out. We're gonna need that money to extend into January or February. So you'd have to do the math on 10 or 12 weeks at least. So it's in the couple of hundred billion dollar category, a trillion to state and local governments. The the testing and tracing is probably a couple of hundred billion dollars as well, particularly to support the public health infrastructure in the states. But as I said, it's not just the money for the unemployment benefits. It's also food stamps or what's now called SNAP. It's support for food banks. It's support for farmers to provide their... Farmers are dumping their products and destroying them because they have no market for them. So setting up an infrastructure to get those fresh foods into food banks and for distribution is another way that we can help to solve this problem and support family farms and others. I think that that's about half, maybe roughly about half the cost But there's lots and lots and lots of other stuff. So for example, I didn't mention support for small businesses, but that's critical. If we're going to keep the American people employed, right? And we're going to keep these jobs going, we need more money going to small businesses. And let me say, again, there was a huge racial disparity in the distribution of funds from the so-called Paycheck Protection Program, which was the Small Business Forgivable Loan Program. the money overwhelmingly went to businesses that had existing very close relationships with a traditional bank. So those tended to be whiter businesses and bigger businesses, not the small mom and pops that are so critical to the success of the black and Latinx communities. So a lot of those businesses are just disappearing because they didn't get any money because they didn't have relationships with a bank or frankly, banks didn't give them the money that they needed. I think you'd have lots of people agreeing with you on that. I mean, I think you talked
0: about the comparison to the Great Depression. You know, I guess, do you think we're seeing histories, you know, are we on that path? Do you feel that if these, what you just described, some of those measures, if Congress doesn't act, do you foresee, you know, that type of suffering ahead for us? Some folks would already say we are there. What is your read on all of that?
1: Right, so we're not gonna get to 25% unemployment. We peaked out at, depending upon how you count, at 17 or 18 or 19% unemployment. So we're not gonna get quite to that level, and unemployment has come down some. Although right now, unemployment is 10 and percent, which is higher than the highest level we reached during the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, 2010. So it's still very high, but think about the enduring images of the Great Depression, right? Bread lines, soup lines, people selling apples for a nickel on the corner. That exists now. Right. That's exactly my point, is we're seeing miles-long lines at outdoor food banks where you know, low-income families, middle-income families that lost their paychecks and really don't know what to do. Small business people who lost their businesses don't know what to do. People who live paycheck to paycheck, revenue to revenue, month to month. And now they are they don't have food. They can't feed their children. To me, that's the measure. What's happening with poverty? What's happening with hunger? What's happening with despair, fear? I think that on those metrics, we're there right now. To me- fear is the leading economic indicator in the United States right now. People are afraid in large measure to leave their homes and do business with one another because they don't want to get a coronavirus that could kill them or kill grandma and grandpa or make their kids sick and they get some horrible inflammatory illness. There's fear throughout the economy. And that's Because it's a scary time. The Federal Reserve did a study that said if you earn less than $40,000 a year, there was a 40% chance that you lost your job during this recession. That That is well above what we saw during the Great Depression. That is an unfathomable level of job loss and economic destruction in those communities. So we really need to change direction. We desperately need to change direction because I think it's here for too many Americans. And certainly,
0: you know, the KIPP communities fit the description that you just shared. And so many of our parents, this is what we are hearing from our parents and our communities, just the economic devastation that they've experienced, the uncertainty of how and when it ends, and the fear of obviously both the impact of that economic devastation and the fear of the health crisis and, and having to choose between you know, your physical safety and, you know, food, putting food on the table is something that so many of our families are wrestling with every day. And I guess I got two final questions for you, Seth. I'm really grateful for all of your time. I mean, I guess you mentioned childcare earlier, childcare and remote learning, you know, if schools don't open, how do people go back to work? I mean, we're obviously, I have two boys, you know, I'm wrestling with that same issue If, If if our kids' school don't open, So what do you see as the connection or the solution for childcare and remote learning, or is there not one?
1: Yeah, so you perfectly illustrated the excruciating choice that parents are experiencing. You Millions and millions and millions of parents. We have 30 million families that have a child under the age of 18, most of them school age in the United States. So millions and millions and millions of parents unexpectedly and involuntarily became teacher's assistants over the course of the last five months. And they didn't train for it, they didn't expect it, and they have other jobs. Most of them, almost all of them have other jobs. So they're stuck in this very difficult situation where they don't want to put their kid in an unsafe environment. They certainly don't want to contribute to making teachers or cafeteria workers or administrators or janitorial staff sick. But they have to do their jobs, and even for people who are able to work remotely, and not only about half of workers are able to work remotely. A lot of people actually have to go to a physical workplace. Those essential workers have to go to a physical workplace to do their jobs. So they're stuck. What are they supposed to do? And so what we're seeing cropping up is ad hoc childcare arrangements where you know family members are helping out, grandma and grandpa are helping out, maybe putting them at risk. Neighbors are helping one another, they're doing a cooperative arrangement. They're growing their bubble in order to be able to do it. But it's not a sustainable system. The non-educational daycare system, or I shouldn't say non-educational, but daycare system that's not schools, but that is for younger kids. That's collapsing because they don't have money, they don't have revenue. People are scared to put their kids in. Some of them have closed just because they can't figure out a way to keep young kids safe. And we don't have an infrastructure. You know, that really the daycare system isn't available to a large percentage of low wage families, certainly families that are on public assistance. They, they simply can't afford it. They don't have a mechanism for getting it. It's just too, way too expensive for them. So, this is, again, this is a national problem that the national government has to take on. We need to pump a very sizable amount of money into the childcare system and stand it up. Help them figure out how to get safe. We need to do the same thing with schools. You know it's not we've been presented with this either or choice, and that is stay closed or open.
0: Seth Harris, thank you so much for sharing so much wisdom with us. We would you know we were always looking for great teachers. You said you know that might be in your skill set. so if you're ever looking, please let us know and please know you have an open invitation. If and when schools reopen, come visit. It would be great or virtually to get you to speak to some of our high school and college age students to share so much of this and to answer their real questions, right? I mean, they've got real questions and just the sort of the authenticity that you speak with, I think they would very much appreciate. So thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks a lot, Dave. Uh, Thanks for having me. And I'm in. Just send the invitation. I'll be there.
0: We also today wanted to hear directly from an essential worker because such a large percentage of KIP parents make up the one-third of U.S. citizens who have been deemed essential and are currently working outside their homes. As we know, these essential workers have had the highest exposure to the pandemic. We are so fortunate to have Wanda Neal here with us today. She's the parent of four KIPPsters in New York City, including one KIP alum, and works as a registrar in an emergency room in a New York hospital. Wanda, thank you so much for joining us and being willing to share your story over the past six months. So talk to us a little bit as a parent, how has it been managing all of this? Your work life, your kids, your own life, just everything over the past six months. How has it been for you?
2: So it's been a challenging time working in an emergency room Being a mother of four children, all in different grades, one just graduated from college and really hasn't been able to start his career because of this pandemic. It's been difficult for him to get a head start. And then the little ones just trying to get them to to learn during this time. It's something that's been like really different for them. And me being working in a hospital during this time. It's been challenging. Again, you know, there were times where I couldn't get close to them. So I can't couldn't be close enough to kind of teach them what they needed to learn or even hug them at times.
0: Thank you, Ms. Neil, so much for just being willing to share. It's heartbreaking to hear. I can I can only imagine coming through the door and not being able to hug your child.
1: Right,
0: the, that was the, tough. The, the, I can only imagine that challenge. How have you personally been able to see that this through? And do you feel differently? I mean, you're still going to work every day. I mean, so do you feel differently today than you did six months ago? Is every day still as stressful? How is it today? I mean, I know things are better. In New York City as a whole, how is it today?
2: Well, I was, I don't want to say fortunate, but I feel that I am because I'm here and I'm speaking with you guys. I got sick with the virus and it was the most scariest time of my Mm -hmm. life. And it's like you watch it happen. It's kind of like I was watching it from the outside of me, just watching it happen not knowing what was gonna happen next. Living in the Bronx, there's not a lot of ways to social distance in my apartment. So everyone is here. You're wondering who's gonna be sick next, if they're gonna make it. The little ones were fortunate enough that they were not sick. And if they were, like they didn't show any symptoms. But now I think I'm in a better place. I would say I have anxiety still, but not as much as I did in the beginning. Because again, we kind of went through the whole thing. You're left with a little bit of a stigma because you don't know whether you should tell people that you had it because you don't know how they're going to react are they going to treat you different? Are they going to treat your kids different? Are they not going to want to be around you because they think that you're still sick and you're going to make them sick? So there's a lot that kind of goes into it. I have a little less anxiety going to work now. They do say that there's going to be a second wave of it. I hope that there isn't. I don't know how that will affect me. And I'm sure the closer it gets to the time that they say my anxiety may build a little bit more just because there's no firm answer of, okay, you got it, you're okay now, you won't get it again. No one's been kind of able to say that. So in that sense, I feel like a little bit less anxious and in a better place than I was when I first started.
0: Again, thank you for just being willing to to share all this with us. First and foremost, I'm glad you're, you're well, Thank <laughs> you. your Family Thank is you. well. I'm glad, I'm glad everybody is on the other side of the, of the virus, you know, and just, I think hearing from directly from parents, I think helps, helps reduce that stigma, helps people mm-hmm. understand that this is our community, this is our extended family, and, and hopefully you feel less alone, knowing, you know, And hopefully the start of school Mm -hmm. helps reduce some of the burden on you at home this fall. Yes. That I think leads me to my next and last question. I mean, what kind of support do you think parents who are essential workers, who are frontline workers need during this time? And I guess that support can come from, you know, just generally, whether you think that support needs to come from the government, whether you think that support needs to come from schools, wherever you think that support support needs to come from.
2: Honestly, I feel that everyone plays a role in this. It's not just anyone. It's not just this person or, or this agency or this part of the government. I think that you know, we are people and we are all connected to each other in one way or another. So that support, like, you know, that's a mental support. There is support for the families. And, you know, like I said, you kind of, I, I felt isolated. I felt like I didn't have anyone and I didn't want anyone to come in to help me because I didn't want to make Anyone sick, so I didn't, and I also didn't want to send my kids to anyone because I didn't know if they could make them sick unknowingly. So I think it has to come from everywhere. I know for me, like, I thankfully I had my job, I never lost it. But if it was comforting to know, like, Kip, and not because I'm talking to you, I'm gonna say this, but. The teachers were great. The social workers were great in reaching out to me. So many of them and just offering, you know, what did I need? Did I need anything? You know, they brought me, Ms. Boffman brought me food one day. I didn't really need it, but it felt good because for that time, I didn't have to go out to the store and do all these things, but all those kinds of things like it does not, it's not just one person, it's the schools, it's, it's the government, it's the healthcare system, just everyone in general. For me personally, there's like a lot of anxiety and just thinking of it and thinking of having to go through it again, it, it's a lot, it's a lot. Miss Neal, I can hear in your
0: voice you know, I could you know, while, <laughs> while, while the folks listening won't be able to see you, I can see I'm so glad you're safe. I am so glad you are well. If there's anything you need from us during this time, your family, you know, please feel free to reach out directly either to, to the school, to me, to any of us. And we are really, really thankful that you were willing to be this open and this brave to share your story with the, the broader KIPP team and family.
2: Thank you, thank you guys, thank
0: you. Thank you, Ms. Neal, for being with us today, for being willing to share so openly and bravely from the heart of your experiences, of your anxiety, of just everything that you've been through. We are really, really grateful And all of New York is grateful for what you and other frontline workers are doing to make sure everyone is cared for while also taking care of your own family. Thank you. And if there's ever anything that we from KIPP or I can do personally to be of service to you, please don't hesitate to ask. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the KIPP On Learning podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to get alerted about new episodes and visit our website kip.org for job opportunities and information about our schools. We will be back
2: soon with even more inspiration and insights from our community.